0: Um, uh, Luke chapter 9, if you have a Bible, is where we'll be. When Courtney was pregnant, we were living in St. Louis. And um, one of the things, I guess, that you have to do when you get pregnant is find a doctor uh, because there are a lot of appointments. And so I didn't know anything about this. But the decision for Courtney, uh, for who her doctor was going to be, was really easy because Courtney's sister lived in St. Louis and had three kids that were all delivered by this doctor. And so Courtney chose... uh, to have her as her doctor. And she was a nanny for the three, uh, for her and our nieces. Um, And so she knew this doctor very well. She'd spent a lot of time with the doctor. And then when Courtney was in labor, we're in the hospital and it's just like the most miserable day of your life. Um, And so we we had a really long labor and we're tired. And she was especially tired. She'd been awake for over 24 hours um, she was in just so much pain. You're such a, you're so strong. Um, but she was also uh, miserable. And I was also tired and miserable. And I don't know how to help. Like my jokes stopped being funny like a long, you know, much earlier in the day. And so we're there. And then our doctor comes in. And again, we've known her. We've gone to many appointments with her. She knows our connection to her sister. Like, we've spent a lot of time with her. And the doctor comes in just to check on her. And she sees Courtney in her moment of just, you know, pure misery. And she says, I've never noticed how much you resemble your sister. We're <laughs> like, uh, okay. Like, this is the time where you're going to notice and point out that I look like my sister? Like, in the moment of my, like, worst you're going to look, and we've laughed about that because it's just a weird thing to say in that moment. Like, why are you comparing? I guess, you know, the way that you look in labor is the same way your sister looked in I mean, it's just, it's a weird thing. Here's why I tell you that story. Because for people to see that you're related to Jesus they're gonna to have to see you resemble him in your suffering. For people to see that you're related to Jesus, they're gonna to have to see you resemble him in your suffering. And that's what Jesus is gonna show us in the text that we're looking at today. So we're gonna walk through this together. We're gonna to point out some things and explain some things along the way. And then I'm going to ask you some questions at the end. All right? So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. So far up to this point in the gospel of Luke, we've seen how Jesus is demonstrating his power to redeem. So he's demonstrating his power to teach and to heal and to forgive sins and to drive demons out of people and to settle the storm. And last week we even saw how Jesus raised the dead. So Jesus has this power to redeem. He brings good things to broken things. And that's what he's been doing throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so because he's done so much of that, news about him is spreading everywhere and people are trying to figure out who he is. Who is this guy? crowds are talking about him and in fact so many people are talking about him that even Herod who is the ruler of this area is asking that question and is trying to arrange a meeting with Jesus and we see that earlier in Luke chapter 9 in verse 7 and so everybody's trying to figure out who Jesus is and Jesus knows that and so that's where we pick up the story in verse 18 While he, that's Jesus, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So everybody's trying to figure out who I am. What are some of the theories that are out there? Verse 19, they answered. John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. So the crowds were seeing Jesus demonstrate so much power that they thought, well, John the Baptist just got killed. Maybe he came back from the dead, and Jesus is John the Baptist. Or Elijah, he rode a chariot into heaven. Maybe he's, you know, rode it back, and now here he is. Or maybe one of the other prophets who did crazy stuff, maybe they've come back from the dead. I don't know. Who is this guy? And then Jesus asks an even more important question, and that's this. But what about you? Verse 20, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah, or the Messiah of God. Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't matter what everybody else has to say, At some point, everybody has to answer this question for themselves. Who is Jesus? God doesn't have any grandkids, the saying goes. He only has kids. In other words, you don't become a follower of God just because your mom's a follower of God. You don't become a follower of God just because, well, we grew up in a family and we go to church and we're American and yada, yada. That doesn't make you a follower of God. You've got to eventually decide for yourself who is Jesus. And so Jesus now says, okay, what did the crowd say? But what do you say? And Peter has witnessed Jesus demonstrate so much power over and over and over and over and over that his conclusion is you've got to be the most powerful. You've got to be the Messiah. The Messiah was the ancient Messiah. Figure that, that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament that God would send this figure, God would send this man who would have authority, would have power, who would bring redemption to God's people, who would bring God's kingdom, who would save God's people. So Peter's seen so much power demonstrated in Jesus, he goes, You've got to be the most powerful, the Messiah. By calling Jesus the Messiah, he's saying, Jesus is the leader of all leaders. Jesus has the most power, the most authority, the most glory. He is worthy of the most respect, the most obedience, the most loyalty, the most devotion. And that's what makes what Jesus says next so shocking. Verse 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. Verse 22, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Peter said, Jesus, you're the king of all kings. Jesus, you're the leader of all leaders. And Jesus says, and this king is going to a cross. He's been demonstrating his power to redeem in all of these incredible things that he's done, these incredible miracles that he's done. But what Luke wants us to see and what Jesus wants us to see Is that his power to redeem will be demonstrated most, not in his strength, but in his suffering. His power to redeem will be demonstrated most, not in his strength, but in his suffering. And so he says, You're right, I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody yet, because before it's announced, that I'm the Messiah. It's necessary that I suffer. He calls himself the son of man, which is one of his favorite terms for himself. And that term comes from Daniel chapter seven. I think verse 13 and 14, you can go read that sometime. But it's this Old Testament image of the Messiah being highly exalted, sharing the glory that God has. And Jesus calls himself now The Son of Man, and he says it's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the Jewish leaders, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? He's the King of all kings. He's the leader of all leaders. Why does he have to die? That's not generally how you become a great king. In the Old Testament, the most famous king, David. That's who everybody loved. Let me tell you something about David. He won all of his battles. The reason he was a great king is because he won stuff. He didn't lose. So why is it necessary for the king of kings, the leader of leaders, to die? to suffer. Right now in my quiet time, um, actually I just ended uh, last week, but um, so far in this calendar year, I've been going through the book of Philippians just over and over and over reading the book of Philippians. And while I was doing that, I was going through uh, this little commentary by D.A. Carson on the book of Philippians. And it was just, I've never done something like that before, uh, but it was awesome. And I would highly recommend that book to you. But in uh, one of his chapters, he has this section where he talks about five things that the cross achieves or five things that, is a, that, that are accomplished at the cross. And I think that what he shares in that answers this question. Why is it necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to go to the cross? Here's the first one. These are all from a different perspective that it will look at it. First, from God's perspective, the cross was necessary to judge sin and justify sinners. From God's perspective, the cross was necessary to judge sin and justify sinners. When God created mankind, he designed us to be in a deep fellowship with him but we have broken that fellowship by rebelling against him, by thinking that we know better than him. Even though you made us, actually, we know what's best. You should stay out of things. That's the nature of sin. That's what we do. And because we've broken our fellowship with him by trying to be wise in our own eyes, we've created all kinds of dysfunction in the world. That's the basic human problem. How should the God who made us How should a God who is holy and just respond to sinners who have broken relationship with us in our arrogance, and our foolishness? How should he respond? The right response. The right response from a good authority who recognizes that evil is being done is to step in, to be angry and to take action. That's the right response of good authority. Isn't that true of the authority that we want in our lives? That when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, when someone is doing the wrong thing, you want to be able to appeal to the authority to step in, to be upset about that and to take action. In fact, maybe part of your story The reason that you've gone through so much pain is because the authorities or an authority in your life who should have been angered at what happened to you instead decided to ignore it and sweep it under the rug. That is not how good authority responds to evil. And God is a good, holy just king who will do what's right. And so he is angered by our sin and sinners deserve to pay for what we've done in breaking that relationship. But God is also a merciful, loving, gracious king. And that's how he's always been. He's all of those things at the same time at all times. It's not like sometimes God has to choose, am I going to be just today or am I going to be gracious and forgiving and merciful today? Am I going to be holy today or am I going to be loving today? God doesn't have to choose. He's all of those things at all times. So the question is, how can a good, holy, just God ever have a relationship with with foolish, arrogant sinners like us? And the answer is the cross. Because at the cross, God judges sin by transferring it to Jesus. When God looked at the mess we had made, he decided to send his son. In his love, he chose to send his son to come towards us to pay the price for our sins by going to the cross. So at the cross, God judges sin. And at the cross, God justifies sinners. That means he transfers the goodness of Jesus to sinners. A substitution is made. The cross is the place where What God demanded payment for was made. It was an act of justice because he demanded payment. It was an act of grace because he made the payment himself. That's what the cross accomplishes. This is testified in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verses five through six is probably the clearest teaching on this in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse five But he, speaking of this messianic king, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Verse six, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The New Testament also teaches the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He that is God made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Why is it necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and die on the cross? Because it's at the cross that God judges sinners and justifies sinners. So if you are here today and you are overwhelmed by your guilt, God's invitation to you is simple. It's Change your mind about how you've been living. That's the word repent. Think differently about how you've been living. Recognize that your way is not wiser than mine. And then come trust in me. That's God's invitation to you. The reason you can trust him is because he has sent his son, Jesus, to die in the place of sinners. So come, repent and believe. That's the invitation of God. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer. Here's the second thing. These next four move faster if you're getting worried about, we got to get through five of these. From Jesus's perspective. So from God's perspective, judge sinners, justify sinners. From God, from Jesus's perspective, The cross was necessary to obey his heavenly father and to reconcile sinners. Throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say things like, I only do what I hear and see my father doing. I'm just here to do my father's will. In fact, in Luke, Um, In just a few weeks, we're going to look at Jesus in the garden. The night he's arrested and the night before he goes to the cross, he's praying. And what he's praying is, your will be done, not mine. God, not my will, but your will be done. When God looked at the mess we had made because of our sin, God's plan was to send his son. Because he loved us, his plan was to send his son to bring us back to him. And so Jesus going to the cross is Jesus joyfully choosing to obey his father. Jesus was not a victim of all of this. Jesus was a volunteer who volunteered to fulfill his father's plan. And it's not like God the father was like an abusive dad who was like, we gotta save these people. And so why don't you get down there and you'll have to suffer. That wasn't the image. Instead, together, They form this plan and Jesus volunteers to go obey his father's will. I love that idea that Jesus was a volunteer because I'm from Tennessee, the volunteer state. Go Vols. So Jesus, from Jesus's perspective, the cross was necessary to obey his heavenly father. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verse eight. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The argument there is Jesus was equal with God and yet he chose to humble himself and be obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. And not only did he joyfully obey his heavenly father, but he also did this. He went to the cross to reconcile sinners. Listen to 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That's one of my favorite verses. I basically say that in some form or fashion every week. Why was the cross necessary? Why was it necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected and be killed? to joyfully obey his father and to reconcile sinners. Jesus is sent from God to sinners so that he can bring us back into relationship with God. Here's the third. From Satan's perspective, the cross destroyed the power of his accusations. The word Satan literally means the accuser, That's his name. Here is Satan's strategy and his tactic. He wants to accuse God to us and say, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really want what's best for you. Instead, God's trying to keep you from happiness. God's got all of these rules because he wants to control you and manipulate you and coerce you. And so he's got all these rules for you to obey But here's the truth. Nobody knows what would make you happy more than you. You live with yourself all the time. God doesn't know you. You know you. So don't listen to him. Listen to yourself. That's the only way for you to experience happiness, for your life to have meaning, is for you to do things on your own. So he baits us to the edge of sin and disobedience against God. And then, the moment we cross the line, he condemns us for it. He accuses us. You are worthless. You are such a piece of crap. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. But I'm speaking, I'm quoting Satan, so it's okay. (laughs) You're worthless. No one would love you. If people knew the real you, if people knew how sick you are, there's no way they would love you. Those accusations lose their power at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus proves that actually real life is found in obedience to God. There is joy on the other side of suffering. At the cross, this is why Hebrews 12 can say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's joy on the other side. And at the cross, the accusation that you are worthless and because of what you've done, you need to hide in the dark and keep secrets and never be honest about your sin and that you'd be unlovable because of your sin. That loses all persuasiveness at the cross. Do you know how valuable you are to God? Even while you were his enemy, Christ died for you. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whew. I don't know what that is, but hopefully it's not a big deal. Um, so take that, Satan. Okay, so number four from sin's perspective, the cross removes the damages. The cross removes the damages. Sin was like a debt that we couldn't pay. At the cross, the debt is canceled. Sin was like a stain that you couldn't get out. You're even using your grandmother's wives' tale about how to best get out the stain. And it just would not get away. But at the cross, though our sins are scarlet, he has made them white as snow. And then the last thing, from our perspective, the cross gives us a new supreme standard of life. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Philippians 2, verse 5 adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus's sufferings in the cross. The cross gives us a new supreme standard of life. The good news that Luke wants us to see is not just that Jesus is a powerful leader who can redeem things by his power. That is true, but he also wants us to see that Jesus most demonstrates his power to redeem, not in his strength, but in his suffering, by going to the cross. In light of that, Jesus turns to all of his disciples that are gathered with him there, and he says, So if you're going to follow me, Then you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Peter, you called me the leader of all leaders, the Messiah. But hey, if anybody wants to follow me, here's the vision: here's where we're going to the cross. To deny yourself means that you say no to what you want and yes to what God wants. To take up your cross means that you've got to be willing to suffer. Following Jesus will cost you something. Putting these two ideas together of denying yourself and taking up your cross daily, I think think there are three uh, ways that this might play out. Three things that this means. First, to carry the burdens of others. What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? It means to carry the burdens of others. A friend of mine in Kentucky who is a worship pastor, he's probably 10 or 15 years older than me, but just wise man, and I love that guy. And I was having a conversation with him uh, one time where he was talking about how um, his wife wanted to get uh, hypoallergenic pillows for everybody in their uh, house. She thought it would make allergies less and um, make people healthier. I don't know. The problem was he already liked his pillow, and he didn't want to get a new pillow. He wanted to keep his pillow. And so he was talking about that, and he said, "You know, I would, I would give my life for my family. Like literally, I would be laying dead on the floor before I would let something happen to my wife and my kids." But most of the time, I don't have to do that. Most of the time, I just have to give up my pillow. And that's what it means to take up your cross. Sometimes we can almost romanticize the idea of like, I would give my life, I would give my all. I would give, you know, I'm willing to die for this. And it's like, that's awesome. You might have to do that. Right now, we just need you to go get some milk. Could you do that? Right now, we just need you to to load the dishwasher. Could you do that for us? To take up your cross, like, we romanticize it like, I'm gonna charge hill, you know, the hill. And it's like, there may come a time where that's what it requires of you. In fact, the 12 guys standing around, most of them would give their lives. But don't think you would be willing to do that if you won't load the dishwasher. Taking up your cross means carrying the burdens of others. It also means killing your sinful desires. See, here's the truth. Your sinful desires are already killing you. Think about the fact that the wages of sin is death. Ever thought about what that means? That means whenever you sin, whenever I sin, We are killing the good that God intended. Um, In her book, Gay Girl, Good God, Jackie Hill Perry tells the story of how she came out of a lifestyle of homosexuality and came to embrace Jesus as her savior and to start to follow him. And while she's telling her story, she she's having this inner dialogue with herself and she realizes, this is what she writes, she realized that this sin would be the death of her. And she could testify to her own experience that the more that she sinned, the less life she was experiencing. And then she had this thought, what else was I loving that might be the death of me? For a long time, she discusses in the book how she thought the only thing standing between her and God was her homosexuality. But she came to realize that that was actually a posture of self-righteousness because it assumed that every other part of her was acceptable to God except for this one thing. And what she came to see was that she had all kinds of desires and motivations that were contrary to God's will that were destroying her life the wages of sin is death sin will kill you following Jesus means putting to death those sins by the spirit of God it means fighting the battle against sin and it also So it means to carry the burdens of others, to kill your sinful desires, and to continue in the face of rejection. The cross was humiliating. When Jesus says to these disciples, take up your cross, he's saying, not just die, but do it in the most reprehensible, embarrassing, humiliating, disgraceful way possible he's saying to get used to being rejected you want to be my follower it's not a popularity contest so jesus says that's my vision And on the surface, it's like, all right, well, we'll find a new leader. Uh, Thank you for laying that all out for us. That was a very crystal clear picture of where you're going. We'll just get a different leader. Like, why would you embrace that vision for life? And that's what he says next. Remember that... He says, the son of man, it's necessary for him to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. So then he says, if you're going to follow me, that's the path. We're going to the cross. Here's why you should follow me. Here's why you should come with me. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. If you cling to your life, you'll lose everything in the end. But if you cling to the cross, you will gain everything in the end. If you cling to your life, you'll lose everything in the end. But if you cling to the cross, you will gain everything in the end. See, sometimes I think the picture here is we think about our lives like we've got this safe over here. And there are certain things that we want to put in the safe so that nobody can touch them, including God. My money is in the safe. I'm going to put that there. I'm going to do what I want with that. My money is the thing that guarantees my future. And so I'm not going to allow anybody to see that, including God. We do this with all kinds of stuff. Gossip. I just enjoy hearing about stuff going on in other people's lives. And so... You know, shoot me. And so I like talking about that stuff. And so that's in the safe. We're going to lock that up so nobody can get to it, including God. Because that, it's just, it's fun. Jealousy. Lust. Bitterness. Ambition. Ambition. This is my vision for the world. This is what we're doing. This is where the company's going. This is where our family's going. This is the level we're gonna make it to. This is where my kids are gonna to go to school. This is, this is the life we've got. And we're putting that in here. We're gonna make sure we, we put that in the safe and lock it up so that nobody can damage that. We're committed to that. Nobody can get to it, including God. He says, if you put it in the safe, if you try to cling to your life, you're going to end up losing everything. But if you cling to the cross, in the end, you'll gain everything. Then he asks a question, verse 25, for what does it profit or what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? See, that's how most people live. They live for themselves. They pursue their dreams. They pursue their vision for the world. They look out for themselves. They serve the people that, you know, it makes sense to serve these people because they helped me. And then they get to the end of their life and they die. And then what happens to all of the stuff? And I'm not just talking about possessions, although I'm certainly including that. What happens? It's gone. Jesus is trying to help you just have a a practical principle that think with the end in mind. Listen, if my death is followed by a resurrection, if I am the king of kings, the leader of all leaders, if I'm the one who has glory and I went to the cross, then trust me and come with me to the cross. Lay down your life. Deny yourself. And follow me. And then Jesus fast forward. He wants to fast forward our minds to the future. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, my words being the words he's just spoken about the cross, Whoever's ashamed of these, whoever listens to that and is, doesn't want anything to do with that, is embarrassed by that, is, is rejecting that, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Someday, Jesus is going to return. And on that day, he will be raised in glory And you'll want him to say, hey, come with me. But if you despise the cross, you don't get to share in the resurrection. You have to follow Jesus to the cross if you wanna share in the glory of his resurrection. For people to see you're related to Jesus, they'll have to see you resemble his suffering. And just to prove that he's telling the truth, he says in verse 27, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The glory I'm talking about that I'll have someday when I return, some of you here are going to see that before it happens, so that you know I'm telling the truth about the future. And eight days later, three of them go up on a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them, they see this glory and they say, it's good to be here. We'll talk about that next week. What might this invitation, this call of Jesus require of you? For Peter and for most of them standing there it literally required their life they literally had to give their life for Jesus Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book The Cost of Discipleship he says on two separate occasions Peter received the call follow me it was the first and the last word Jesus spoke to his disciple And listen to this. A whole life lies between these two calls. Cost him his life, what will it cost you? Will it cost you your money? Is that what you're afraid of? Will it cost you your reputation? Will talking about your faith in Christ publicly damage your your influence or your image or maybe even your, your job? Will confessing a sin or a sinful habit cost you your name, your reputation? Will it cost you your comfort Where might Jesus be asking you to go to take his good news? Most people don't get called as missionaries overseas, but we shouldn't be ignorant to think that no one does. And maybe he's calling you to go. You've got a business and you intersect with people all over the world. Well, maybe Jesus is calling you to use that To leverage it for his name. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do in retirement? Maybe he's calling you to literally sell everything and go. Do you have fear of what God might be calling your your kid or your grandkid to do? Like, well, Jesus. You know, she's pretty smart, so we could use her stateside. You know, she's going to be a doctor. So we don't need her to be going off for, you know, that, anybody can do that stuff. We, we, She's, I mean, I really hope that, I really hope that he doesn't grow up and get some radical idea. Like, you can be a good Christian and just go to church here. we got churches here. but what if God is calling you to go? The church is called to be a community who lives like this. A community where the cross, the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his death and his resurrection is the thing that we rally around. And that should shape everything that happens here. I think that Paul was reflecting on this passage when he wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. This is what I'm going to leave you with. He's writing this to a church And he says, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. In light of that, let me ask you. If someone became more like you, would they be more like Jesus? Do you look more like a friend or an enemy of the cross of Christ? Do you more resemble a citizen of earth or a citizen of heaven? Are you eagerly awaiting Christ's return? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he did not despise the cross. Father, I ask that you would by the power of your spirit, bring faith to those who have heard this message. God, would that faith lead us to take up our cross? I don't know what that looks like for each person here, but would you give them wisdom to know what to do with what they've heard today and then the courage to do it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?